0: I am Rebecca McCain with my fellow BCR podcaster Alan Winson, usually recording at one of our favorite neighborhood bars on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. But today we are zooming it with a guest on the other side of this great North American continent: teacher and fellow podcaster and advocate for a kinder world, Canadian Morgan Michaels. And with that bit of an introduction, here we go.
1: Morgane Michaels resides and works in Victoria, British Columbia, and this lady wears a bunch of hats. Morgaine is a wife with two children, a teacher, speaker. She produces and is the host of a prodigious podcast on the importance and difficulty of teaching called Kindsight 101. She recently published a book whose title explains its focus, From Burnt Out to Fired Up, Reigniting Your Passion for Teaching. And Morgaine is the creator of Small Act Big Impact 21 Day Challenge. Go take a look at it. It's an activity to make the world a better place through kindness. Thank you so much, Morgane, for joining us. Welcome uh, to Bar Crawl Radio. And we're sorely sorry that we're not at a bar in your hometown. What is your hometown? I know you're in Victoria, uh, yes. British Columbia, right?
2: That's right, up in Canada. And you are in, you are in New York, is that we correct? We are
1: smack dab in the middle of the Upper West Side.
0: We are. So Alan and I are teachers. I'm a Montessori teacher teaching upper elementary. And Alan is a college instructor. And in this moment of co- COVID burnout, we have more questions than can be covered in this conversation. But let's get started. So tell us a bit about your teaching experience and why did you choose to be a teacher?
2: Okay, well, I have been a teacher for over 14 years now, and I think I always knew that I wanted to do work with children, with adults in some capacity as an educator, but couldn't quite put my finger on it. There was a teacher who was really formative for me. I write about him in my book, and his name was Mr. Graham, and he was a drama teacher at my high school. He was absolutely incredible. He was revered by all of the students and some of the staff. He Wore these crazy brocade vests that were custom made, and he wore, you know, these silly hats. And he was he was kind of older and a little bit grizzly. And he smoked Benson and Hedges cigarettes right outside the classroom door. And he spoke in metaphors and had a British accent. He was just this quintessential drama teacher. And we all just absolutely fell in love with him, myself included. Our school was a high school, so it went from grade eight to grade 12. Basically, he he was remarkable for me as well. And so I remember going to high school for the very, very first day in grade eight, stepping into his classroom, and he announced to us that we were all going to learn to juggle and that we were going to learn Robert Frost's The Road Not Taken. And then we were going to perform in front of our teenaged, peers
0: uh-huh. both
2: simultaneously and I think that we just about died all of us when we <laughs> learned this it was the most incredibly overwhelming p- prospect do you, you know do you,
1: do you remember it the oh
2: yeah yeah like it was yesterday like it was it I, was oh, absolutely I, I just remember feeling kind of trepidation but also knowing he had kind of had a reputation that preceded him so I knew whatever challenge he was going to give us would somehow push us into a new dimension right so so we did it somehow and he 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 told us he said you can take the zero which would mean that we didn't try which is kind of a metaphor for life right you can take the zero you can give it zero effort or you can give it a shot and if you fail fail gloriously and he took me all through high school with that metaphor basically just saying that you got to give it your everything and if you if you fail on the stage which i did many times with him we you know i did festival with him and did monologues
1: i just want to, to say that both becky and i We're very impacted by our theater teachers, uh, both in high school and in college. So theater is a big deal in our lives.
2: Absolutely. I think it prepares you for life. You know, it it also kind of gets you used to being uncomfortable and... and he, Mr. Graham asked, actually always used to say, you're kind of like that duck, where on the surface of the water, you look pretty calm, but underneath the water, your little legs are going until exactly until yeah. it feels comfortable. So, you know, time moved on and and he was always there for me in so many ways. And I wrote letters to a lot of the teachers that had made an impact and Mr. Graham was right at the top. And I don't remember what I said but I wrote him a letter. We remained friends and then after high school several years after he called me up one day and he told me that he had terminal cancer. Mm-hmm. And that was a that was a real turning point for me because he had been such a huge influence in my life. And and basically, you know, I was there for him quite a bit and then one day came where he said, "You know, you need to come and see me." And I just knew that would be the last time I'd really have a chance to see him. And I remember walking down the hallway you know his wife had welcomed me into the house and i walked down the hallway of his home and before i went into his room there on the wall was my letter that i had written so many years before and he had framed it and put it on his wall and i think that was the moment i decided to be a teacher because yeah. i went oh <laughs> he had made an impact on me but i hadn't realized the tremendous impact that i had had on him and and i wanted to share that with kids and i wanted to share that with other people because i think it's just it's remarkable how little tiny acts can make that significant impact. Right. Yeah.
1: Um, You've been a teacher now for 14 years. Has Mm -hmm. it paid off? I mean, Mm -hmm. emotionally.
2: Yeah. You know what? And I think I've ebbed and flowed with this. I think I've gone through different seasons and I think we do, you know, when I was bright eyed and bushy tailed at the very beginning, I don't think that I was as discerning about the way in which I was doing things. I just did it and Mm -hmm. failed, you know, dared to fail gloriously, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I made it through. I just remember a friend telling me, as long as you sort of get to the end of that year and we learned something, you know, then there's the success, you know, you've made it through. But I think as the years have gone on, and especially with the birth of my own kids, I think my passion for it has kind of gone through different cycles. And so I've had moments of restlessness, which has kind of pushed me into doing other things and then still feeling somewhat fulfilled by my career, but, but putting more of my creative energy into the other things. And then there's this positive feedback loop that happens. I'm sure we'll talk about a bit more, but when you're doing exciting things outside of the timetable as a teacher, that does feed back into your passion in the classroom. And I just think that we, you never really arrive. And so Yeah, I feel satisfied, but I know how to feed that satisfaction too. I know how to get there, and it's not always directly from the classroom, you know.
1: And some what one I imagine one of that positive feedbacks that you've been engaged in is Kindsight One Hundred and One, the podcast that you deal with, and you get to talk to some amazing people. Can you talk about Kindsight One Hundred and One, how it got started, and um, you know where, where, where how it developed, and where is it now?
2: Yeah, so Kindsight One Hundred and One is a podcast I created back in two thousand eighteen, and it came out of I think it really was initiated after I read uh, I read Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic. It's a beautiful book. She's the same author that that wrote Eat, Pray, Love, but it's not it's not a fictional book. It's about creativity, and it was tremendously inspiring to me because she said, you know, we are all creative, and this is something I talk about in the book at the end, and I I really believe this in all of my heart that much of our happiness. Is derived from the sense of creativity so long story short i wrote a blog and then from the blog i sort of got inspired to start listening to podcasts and then i was like well man i love listening to podcasts i love listening to people tell their story And then, you know, through a few different avenues, it sort of got planted. The seed got planted for me to start my own. And I did a fellowship with Seth Godin and Alex De Palma. And that was absolutely amazing because it connected me with a whole community of podcasters and just gave me the confidence to just do it kind of like Mr. Graham did right to just give it a go and and defy this weird logic that tells us that we need to ask for permission mm-hmm. from other people in order to do these things. So that's how it got started and I've had the the I I've got about I think almost 200 episodes out. Some of them are what we call host on mics. So they are, you know, where I just do reflections by myself with a glass of wine sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and it feels like I'm doing it, you know, in, in a little silo. And I forget that there are listeners listening, but uh, I do that or I'll have interviews. And I've interviewed people like Seth Godin. I've interviewed Dr. Kristen Neff, who is one of the originators of, of the whole concept of mindful self-compassion. I've interviewed a ton of different educational psychologists like Dr. Green, Dr. Stuart Shanker, a bunch of different people I've been lucky enough to talk to. So,
1: What, what, what do you find that's fun about podcasting? I mean, there is. It is the creative part. There's that. It's a lot of work. Anyone who's not podcasted won't realize the amount of work. But what's the fun part of it for you?
2: Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. And I do all the editing myself. I do all of all of the uploading. You know, I don't outsource that. You do that too. So mm-hmm. you know, like it's a it's a ton of work, and you've got to be mindful about the music and the way that you do your your voiceover. But I think there's a few different pieces. So number one, I feel like I'm leaving not a huge legacy, like I'm going to change the world, but I feel like it's kind of putting my footprint a little bit on the world. And I think that it's positive content. And I think we need a lot of that. And I think educators need that. We need to be surrounded by inspirational and positive messaging. And this idea that like, we don't need to be perfect to be making an impact. I think that's important. So I'm proud of the messaging. I'm also proud of the fact that I get to talk to these people who are I, I don't know. There's some credibility that being a podcast host gives you automatically, which honestly, I I'm no different than the same, you know, I would, I, I was in 2016. I just have a podcast now. I'm still the same person. I think I've gotten a bit more comfortable on the mic too. Like I'm, I'm okay with that air, that playing air silence chicken, you know, like dead air chicken where you're just kind of pausing and waiting. Cause usually things come out of it. So I think I've learned some skills, but I think the, the most valuable part has been able to to talk to these people and be in a room with them one on one just because I say I have a podcast.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that dead air thing, my 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 wife and co host, Rebecca McKean, we looked at each other because I have a problem with that dead air thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I don't.
1: <laughs> so, I'll, I'll I'll take a note I from you. I don't mind it. In the Kind Side 101 tagline, Uh, you say that you talk with, quote, world-renowned educational leaders about the mobilizing power of kindness. What do you mean by a term you use in your program, use it in your book, authentic kindness? Can you define that for us?
2: I think the first idea came from when I read Simon Sinek's book on uh, Leaders Eat Last, and he talks about the science of kindness, which is essentially that when we push out kindness in the way that we're interacting with others, that we're generous with our spirit. There's no ulterior motive or agendas. We're really just wishing the best for other people around us and doing everything within our power to show up for those people in a generous way. I'd say that's kind of what kindness is to me. So it's the way you speak to people. It's the actions that you take. It's the heart that you have. And there's some some more multifaceted ways of looking at empathy and compassion and, and kindness itself within that. But in a nutshell, that's it. And the science behind it is what's so fascinating because I think through the small little acts that every individual does there's this ricochet effect and this rippling out that can shift a whole culture to be more psychologically safe and all of these things that when we when we talk to you know forbes top 10 lists they're saying like we need people to feel like they can be creative we need people to take risks well where does that start it starts from the individual who deems themselves a leader because of the way that they show up for their colleagues and their students it's not about top down it's really about how are you showing up honestly for people in a generous spirit and so so you know they talk about oxytocin is that love hormone that's released serotonin dopamine all of these like happiness hormones are released when we witness kindness when we receive kindness directly and then also when we give it and Mm -hmm. so when you have all of those positive hormones flying around (laughs) it directly counteracts stress the cortisol hormone is blocked by the oxytocin hormone and that is pure science so if we want less stressful, you know, work environments and schools, the very easiest way that we can do that is to mobilize kindness, mm-hmm. and we can do that with our students. Uh, and then also through that, they get to see that they're they have that ability to make change in their school. It's very empowering, but it's very simple, and it it can be misunderstood. I think as this kindergarten variety of you know, just be kind. Well, no, you got to really mean it.
1: <laughs> Let, let's go to our practicals. When, when was the last time you were authentically kind? Say today.
2: Today. Oh, wow. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. I think, you know what? I, I'll give you an example just with my kids. I think sometimes sometimes it can be really easy to turn off. Actually, I just read something about this recently where we can show up, as our performative selves for the rest of the world and then when we get home in the comfort of our own space we sort of relax into who we really are and I think it's really natural to feel like we kind of drop our shoulders and but but it's important to show up for our family and so this morning for example uh you know my kids wanted to do some they had soccer but my other you know my daughter was watching my son and so we played uh, a game where she was timing herself to go around the field and see how fast she could go and I think the attentiveness to not just giving her my phone or something like the attentiveness and the need for her to have me also engage with her in a meaningful way takes energy sometimes when you're when you're feeling busy so I think those little micro moments make a big difference but I think you know when it comes to to some of the, the little gestures, you know, I, COVID's flying around right now, right? It's really, it's really got gotten some legs in our communities. And, and I don't mean that lightly, but I, you know, Mm. a lot of my colleagues have gotten it in the classroom and, Mm. and are home with their families and all of that. And so I made, you know, a big batch of brownies and I went and delivered some to, to my friends and, and that feels good. You know, it's, it's not a big deal. It's not a huge, big thing, but it's, it's something. And it just reminds people that they're, they're missed and, and people are thinking about them.
1: Yeah. But it has to be authentic. I mean, I imagine there's an inauthentic kindness, too, where it's just a put-on kind of kindness. But you're talking about something that comes from the heart. It's like you're, you're really there. You're really there for your daughter, and you're really yeah. watching. You're not pretending to watch.
2: No, and I think, like, we – you know, when we think about our, our our receptors, you know, the way that we interact with people, there's this test that people do uh, with smiling, actually. Sean Acor does this in his sessions. And when you're smiling – if you're doing an authentic smile, you can actually, your, your neural receptors will pick up on, if somebody is doing an inauthentic smile, their, their, their occipital muscles around their eyes won't actually contract in the same way. So Mm. it's like, you can't even trick (laughs) people through a fake smile. You, you really have to be genuine. You have to feel it in your heart. And I think we, you know, when we think about drama and acting, same thing, you could be reading lines in a in a monologue and it doesn't connect with the audience not until you really dig deep and you go this is connected to my heart and much of that is like your emotions are you feeling it deep down and that's that whole idea of like empathy compassion empathy is really like feeling it in in your emotions compassion is like feeling beside somebody and then the kindness is basically the action behind those feelings you know you can have this latent empathy where you're sitting on the feelings you know you watch the afternoon news for example or the evening news and you're sitting on these feelings of empathy and compassion and they just kind of circulate and if you don't let them out it can turn into kind of burnout or, or, or a feeling of resentment or overwhelm. You know, that compassion fatigue is just, we need to work through that in a physical actionable way. And so kindness allows us to do that essentially.
1: thank you. Great.
0: So you refer to a broken education system. Are you talking about the United States and Canada? that
2: Yeah. You know what? I, I think I think probably globally, but I, I'd say from my own lived experience, probably Canada and from what I've heard from a lot of people, the States, too. Yeah. Uh, what I see maybe specifically in public education is that we have this catch all net that we're trying to get kids with, you know, like we're, t- we're trying to connect with them the best that we can in this kind of archaic uh system that's that's calling coloni- you know it's deep it's deeply rooted to colonization Uh, There's a lot around, you know, Seth Godin talks a lot about this, this whole industrial complex where we are, you know, the reason that education and schools were first invented is because they wanted to create workers for factories. So we're, you know, processing kids and we're, we're passing them on to the next grade and it's very formulaic and linear. And I think there are moves to make it more open-minded. I have many colleagues who are deep into inquiry style learning, like Trevor McKenzie is someone who is actually a colleague in my school district, but he's making waves around the world. He goes to the Middle East all the time to talk about different ways of approaching education or he goes to Europe. And so it's really exciting. But I think deep down, there's a lot of fear around shifting things. And I'm a kindergarten grade one teacher, and I totally identify with that shift. So something kind of needs to change where we're and the reason is, is because I think this catch all net isn't actually catching all of the kids. It's not really meeting the needs of everyone. We know that there are, you know, minorities who are just not literate uh that that there are people of indigenous descent here for example in 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 british columbia who are not graduating and so why why is that the system isn't working for them so to me when something's not working it's kind of broken right or it definitely is wobbly (laughs) so uh, yeah and i think uh the as much as we try you know we see the effects of that and so it can be disheartening at times to know that you're part of the system that maybe doesn't feel perfect or doesn't feel as effective as we wish it it could, you know, I think that's what I mean by that.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So so what is teacher burnout and how prevalent
2: is it in our education system? Are teachers leaving the profession? Yes. So in droves, the research was pretty significant. I think it was, I think it was in the 60 to 80% range of most educators were feeling, were feeling stressed out. To the point of near burnout. And this is before COVID. Mm. And then we saw, you know, like quite a high number of teachers in the first five years will, will choose to leave the profession entirely because it is just, you could say it's too much, you know, it's too many hours, long hours, high expectations, um, sort of this feeling of lack of success. And so burnout is really this feeling of, you know, it's a combination. It's not necessarily cry on the bathroom floor, you know, what comes to mind when you think of burnout. It's really apathy over time. It's like... Who's apathy? The teachers, the the teachers, but it's also the receptive sort of apathy that you might get from your students when they're like, well, we're kind of tired of this whole thing, too. And you're you're pushing all this energy out and you're not necessarily getting much back in return. And what about the
1: administrators? What about your? Yeah, absolutely.
2: I think I think that it's a cultural thing in schools right now. And I think since COVID, it's gotten worse. And I think the, the major culprit here is fear. I think fear really has really made it so that it's hard for us to try difficult interesting things but it's also because we are afraid of everything right now because it's a scary world out there it feels that way and we're you know i think i think a lot of what's going on right now has a tremendous impact you know around the pandemic and then and then the subsequent events around it whether it's you know protests wherever you stand on that spectrum regardless it's stressful you know? And so that trickles down into our psyche and that can lead to burnout. This feeling of, you know, I'm just overwhelmed. I'm too tired. I don't, I want to call in sick every day. You know, I don't want to show up. I don't want to get up. I'm, I've gotten a full night's sleep, but I'm still tired. Like these are all part of the burnout checklist sort of symptoms. And it is recognized now as part of the mental illness spectrum. But my whole thing on this is that I think we have the capacity, most of us to sort of see that we're in that window of, of high risk for burnout and to do some things that the very practically can bring us back into who it is that we are and get slow down a bit and go no to the, to the outside world saying that it's chaos, you know, kind of go, no, I can dig deep within myself and I can put up the boundaries that I need to still feel wholehearted as a person within this. And then that is an incredibly empowering thing to walk into the world with.
0: Do you see any of this within the system though? Is there any sort of, um, professional people within the system that you're teaching in that are helping the teachers through this?
2: I think that there's more of a willingness. It can be really tricky, though, because there's, there is, I think, a lot of institutions, whether it's schools, whether it's the administration administrators up at, you know, the board offices, or even within corporations, they're recognizing there's a mental health Sort of crisis right now. Many of us are, you know. Uh, there, there's a lot of different people who are putting resources into that, but there's a toxic positivity element to that as well, which can be underneath all of the kind sort of slogans and that we care about your mental health. Is sort of this idea that like all you need to do is just have a bubble bath and it's all going to be fine, or yeah. you're blowing this out of proportion, or you know at least at least you know whenever you start a you know a, a, a conciliatory uh, comment with at least it you know that it's not going to be a supportive one so I think I think again it comes back to that intention is the intention to just get people kind of past their symptoms and up and going again so that they can continue being part of the system or are they genuinely thoughtfully caring about the people in their midst that they that they are responsible for and so for example in my district we have we do have some efforts that are starting to come up. We have mentors who are mentoring over a long period of time. This cannot be a one-day conference and boom done, we're over it. It has to be an ongoing thing. There has to be resources in in counseling and mentorship type group oh, programs boy. that support, you know, this is not a one-off. And so and Is this happening yeah. is
1: this happening in Canada? Is there this that sort of Feedback a lot that of, you get from A lot of things
2: are siloed. So I think it depends on where you're at. In British Columbia, I think in many ways we we have a very um, a very open sort of curriculum that allows a lot of autonomy, which I know is not common. And I think that autonomy, coming back to that whole happiness creativity thing, allows us to create a program for our students that is responsive. And I think within that whole mindset of of autonomy and sort of listening to teachers and it's not perfect there is this space where i think a lot of districts are starting to head into that supportive real deep thinking around what it means to be social emotional learners ourselves as teachers right so we teach it to our students but are we actually practicing it and i think there's starting to be a connection between the two but it's taking time to sort of make that an actual professional development goal
1: you're listening to Bar Crow Radio. We're talking with podcaster and teacher Morgaine Michaels about teaching in the time of COVID and the enormous gift of kindness to others and to ourselves.
0: What about in our educational systems, in our teacher training? Um my teacher training didn't prepare me for any of this at all. Is it is it starting to make its way found, that this this attitude, this uh perspective?
2: Yeah. Do you know, uh, at at the University of British Columbia, Kim Schaunert-Reichel is a leading researcher on actually educator wellness. And so she's done a fair amount specifically with students, but then she started just like me kind of zooming out into the teacher wellness piece and has done a lot of research. And so I think the University of British Columbia has started to really delve into that with leaders like that who are really who are really recognizing like, this is significant. If teachers are not okay, students don't stand a chance, you know? So we really need to make that a priority. And I think it's starting to trickle into, to programming. But again, I think like schools and, and classrooms, our programs are only as effective as the teachers. I really believe that it's about the relationships. And so, no, if, you have a, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so if you have a, if you have a professor who, who doesn't practice, practice the practices, then it's, uh, it, it can fall on deaf ears. I think, again, it comes back to that intention and, and the space and time to practice. So I think there's, people are making headway. And I think because we're seeing attrition in, in the educator profession at such high levels, it's encouraging to see this actually be, be considered head on, but it was so much work to be done.
1: I'm on the other end of the profession. Uh, you're a K-1 teacher. Uh, mm-hmm. Are you talking to me? I'm, I'm a college professor. Or are you just talking to elementary, middle, high school teachers? Because I know several upper-level instructors who, who have gotten burnt out. They're leaving. They don't want to teach in the classroom anymore. They want to just teach online. They don't want to even go in to the classroom anymore. Are you talking to me?
2: I'm talking to you. <laughs> okay. right. I am. You're a teacher, right? You're an educator. And whether you teach preschool... Or you're with toddlers, or you're in that elementary demographic, middle school, high school, or or in the in the post secondary, all of that can be exhausting. And I think some of the secondary effects of, you know, the pandemic right now, the millennial kind of aftermath, which has come, I'm sure you've seen a real shift in the students that you work with. Uh, that that they're sort of, I and I don't want to paint everybody with a brush, but the same brush. But I also think you know. I connect with my kids babysitters who are who are in their late teens early 20s and there's a sense of apathy and a, a feel almost like a feeling of hopelessness that's happening. Mm-hmm. And so when you're met with that as an educator too uh, as a professor and and you're not you know they're looking out on their future and they feel a sense of hopelessness and you're trying to carry that space for them Man, that's a tough job. That can lead to a sense of that for yourself, right? Yeah. So I think we're we're dealing with the shift in, in perspectives. That's yeah. not how I felt when I was 20. I felt excited about life and the future. But I think it's hard right now. There's a lot of struggle.
0: So in your book, From Burnt Out to Fired Up, you mm-hmm. look at personal emotional issues that the teacher faces, uh, mm-hmm. approaches that seem much like effective mental health counseling. Um, these approaches to overcome teacher burnout could apply to anyone under stress. Um, what is it about teaching that makes it unique, uniquely stressful?
2: You know what? I think I think there's a couple of things that make it stressful. I think we're misunderstood by the general population as sort of like babysitters often, especially mm. for the young ones. Mm. Um, it seems like an, er- an easy job, uh, maybe. Uh, something that you see kind of romanticized in in the media, and you know, you think of dangerous minds, and it just seems like if you just put enough heart into your job, then you will win those guys over, and you know, you'll make scholars out of those kids. Well, the reality is, day in day out it's really challenging work like you have to show up with bucket loads of energy and if you don't have it it can be tough to dig deep if you're if you don't feel like you've got a bucket to pull from right so i think the energy expenditure the lack of understanding from the public is significant and that can kind of feel you know i think we all need that feeling of at least respect but sometimes we kind it's nice to have some recognition for the work that you do and when people don't understand or they sort of diminish your job as being oh you're just a babysitter well it makes it like no i spend hours on this job outside of the hours that you see you know they're not all visible hours of work and then you're holding space for Human beings, many of whom are still developing their prefrontal cortex, they do not always act in rational ways, uh, logical ways. They're dealing with trauma, and therefore, some—not all of them—but many of the students, the 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 numbers, no matter what your demographic is, even if you're in in a very affluent place, you're still going to have kids who have who have really complicated home lives. Um, many of whom will actually see some some kind of adverse childhood uh, impact, right? And so, when you're dealing with kids who are traumatized as well, then as an educator who holds space for those kids, who pushes forward on these academic goals often, um, you can have secondary trauma because you hear these stories and they're so nonchalant sometimes. Like, I cannot tell you the number of times I've had disclosures that are like absolutely shocking. And it's when a kid's skipping back from the bathroom as I'm, you know, putting up some bulletin board things and they just disclose that their life is completely falling apart in a shocking way. You would just never even consider and then in they skip to the classroom like it's normal to them and you just like how, how do you deal with that you know so i think there's a lot of factors that are complex in teaching and and it's no wonder you know that we feel stressed the way that we do and nurses are up there too a lot of these giving professions
1: oh yeah are you feeling these things Beck are you oh yeah <laughs>
2: absolutely yeah you are have you is this new for you? Like have you felt sorry, I'm now I this Turning is so typical. The, right? no, go, go
0: ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, have right. you
2: felt this for a long time or is this well, fairly recent? Uh, for me, the I
0: mean, the pandemic really um intensified everything and I'm feeling the shortage of teachers. I, I I work in a small school and I feel very responsible. I'm the head of the the elementary department, but that's two classes. You know, so I feel like, OK, that, that should be easy, but it's really not. And yeah, um, um, and yeah I just feel um, overwhelmed and, and not able to really take a break, you know, because yeah. Yeah. I yeah. If, if I'm if I don't come to work, if I don't show up, it really puts a burden on other people. So I look forward to those little breaks. And yeah. but I do try to stay engaged and excited about what I'm teaching. Um, and I yeah. am. I am. Yeah, yeah she's
1: she's she's amazing uh, uh, the stop. amount of work that she puts into her classes is, it's yeah it's just amazing and i i know people would come up and i've heard i've heard them come up to becky and say you know god bless you for the work you do but they don't understand what the work that you do do you ever want to say look hey look thank you for thanking me but you have no idea <laughs> I know,
2: <right>? what <laughs> i do here it is yeah
1: let me, yeah, me, let it me show you what Can i'm you working on now.
0: then there's that yeah. pile yeah <laughs>
1: A day
2: in the life. That's what they need to do. A day in the life. (laughs) Just just
1: follow me around for a while. It's exhausting. Um, So let's go go to some of the things that you talk about in your book about what a teacher uh, can do uh, who's facing thinking about quitting and burnout. One of the things you talk about, uh, and again, it kind of is like, you know, it's counseling, is be reflective, self-reflective feel the compassion for yourself. I wonder if you could talk about that.
2: Yeah. You know what? I was kind of, it's funny. I guess it is kind of like counseling, isn't it? Um,
1: Well, we've, we've been in counseling and I read it and it was very much the stuff I heard. And I go, well, yeah, right. I recognize that.
2: Yeah. And I, you know, and I've, I've, Maybe part of me, a lot of teachers are high achievers, high functioners through all this stuff and can deal with a tremendous amount of stress. And so I think there's even sometimes a reticence to invite that self-compassionate lens right into our our way of being like, I don't need that. I'm fine. Um But I think, you know, when I talked to Dr. Kristin Neff about about self-compassion, she brought up this concept of fierce self-compassion, almost like the inner mama bear within you or papa bear or whatever. But as someone who is not afraid to assert those really important boundaries for yourself, because I think, you know, when we think of what generosity can mean, Dr. Adam Grant did a research a sort of examination about this he's he's a fabulous like you know psychologist and uh and he talked about success and the different types of people that there are and he brought it back to generosity being kind of this differentiator and he said the most successful people in you know the world generally when we think of business or whatever tend to be generous people the givers there's also takers who are me 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 and they can be successful but not they burn bridges so you know you lose kind of that that human element and then you have the matchers who are the quid pro quo guys who are like i'll give if you give and you know as long as we're even we're good (laughs) which is fine like it's nice to have those people too because you know they're good for it and they'll they'll be you know loyal to their commitments um but then there's also this unsuccessful group and they tend to be also the givers because they do not have the effective boundaries in place to also put their own needs ahead of Maybe some of the other people around them. And I think teachers tend to be givers. And so you kind of want to decide what end of the spectrum of success you want to be on. That can impact your wellness, right? Is so when we're being reflective, we kind of want to think about what is it that I need and to definitely elevate that, not because you're selfish. I think we're drilled in, you know, it's kind of drilled into us that we're givers, but because you need it in order to sustain the energy that you you are entitled to have to be present for your students and I think being present for your students is what enables you not to burn out and so back to your question really reflection is is about sort of asking yourself these very you know these three very important questions for something very practical that you can do in your phone right now like you could Program this in your phone three times a day. Number one is ask yourself, what am I feeling? And then the second thing is, where do I feel it in my body? Sorry. And mm. then the third thing is then what do I need? And so usually when you can get quiet enough to get in touch with your emotions first, that's the really important piece.
1: That's not easy. You,
2: it's not easy. And that takes but practice. But it is. And I think this is much of this book isn't really rocket science. It's about getting quiet, you know, three minutes a day to just ask yourself those very basic questions. And the thing is, is that over time, it becomes a bit easier because you're asking yourself those same questions and you start to sort of preempt that with the self-awareness of, oh yeah, how am I feeling? Because quite often we blaze through the day. We miss our lunches. We miss our snacks. We don't even move our bodies. We forget to take a sip of water all day for eight, 10 hours. We don't drink water. Like what never, is that?
0: It's a good thing though, because you can never go to the bathroom anyways. So. Well, this
2: is true because yes, you are bound <laughs> by those recess breaks, right? But it's true. I mean, it's crazy. What other profession? Maybe nursing, you know? Um, so I just think it's it's very, it's that reflect piece is huge. And it's not about a 20- Meditation session. I think we have that all wrong. You know, if it's great, great if you can do that, but it doesn't, it can be three minutes. Everybody okay. has three minutes.
0: So let me see. The, the three questions are yes. what am I feeling? Yes. Where am I feeling it in my body? Mm-hmm. And what can I do about it?
2: Yes. Okay. What do I need? What do, what I, do need? I need? What do I need? Because okay. sometimes we don't always know. Like, we know what we need, but sometimes we're like, what do I do? Uh, oh my God. You know, you can get overwhelmed, but you know, generally, I'm thirsty. Okay. I need water. Okay. <laughs> I'm tired. I need a break I for five break. minutes. Yeah. I yeah. need to move my body. Right. You know, sometimes we're just tired in our bodies. We need to get some energy flowing.
1: And I think just recognize that you may not even have the time to kind of like go and get the drink of water, but just I'm recognizing it. It's like yeah. I'm, I'm aware of it now. Right. Now it's right, on right. my
0: list to do. My list to right, do.
1: Right, right, right. <laughs> there's so well many... you
2: can even program it in your phone and then you don't have to think you don't have to spend any energy thinking about it. Just get reminded, you know, in the morning and, and after school and then maybe before bed. It's simple. a great it's idea. Didn't...
1: There's there's so many things that you bring up in the book and it's it's so well documented and then well anecdoted. So that it it becomes not just academic it's it 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 has that that's that personal uh, touch to it um one of the things that i I found very important is rethinking your beliefs mm. um we 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 so often go through life believing things and don't even know we're believing them,
2: yeah, so you know we we have these these self sort of limiting or restricting beliefs sometimes that we almost. We almost think is like truth with the capital T because we believed it for so long or, or, and this is the real counseling part of it. (laughs) Um, Maybe someone told us when we were kids and it's somehow become our inner critic, that inner voice that morphed from someone else's voice to our own. And that's really common. So say if you had a parent who told you all the time that you were lazy, well, you know what? Turns out when you sit down on the couch at night and you're like, oh, I got to sink full of dishes but i what i really need right now is to sit down and just like put my feet up because i've been up all day that little inner critic will go but you're so lazy if you do that right so it's kind of that rethinking and asking yourself well is that actually true am i lazy and then when you can question first of all you have to recognize back to that whole noticing thing you have to recognize that that little inner critic is speaking at all and then you have to learn its language decipher what the heck it's saying and then have the gall and the audacity to actually question it because 90% 90% of the time, if it's negative, it's probably not true. And so if you can reframe that thing and go, yeah, no, sometimes I don't feel like doing the dishes and that's okay. The world won't end. Or you can counteract that little voice in a really logical way. Cause I guarantee you, your, your critical negative little voice probably says like maximum three things can, cons- cons- like consistently. Uh, against you, and if you can kind of battle those three things and and reframe them and challenge them, that I think maybe your days would look a little different or or the way that you spend your time might look different. I yeah. think
1: our whole society would look different. Mm-hmm. If we all kind of were willing to reframe our ideas, both on the liberal side and the and the conservative side. Uh, just continually reframing. But that gets into something else, maybe. But it's, it's <laughs> yeah. an important idea. Yeah.
0: You also look at the importance of having and reaching goals in the classroom. How do I don't know if my goals are achievable for my students? Or um, wh- what do I do if I fail and I don't reach my goals? Am I a bad teacher?
2: Yeah. Well, you know what? I see. No, you're not. But yeah, I, I hear the question. No, you're definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I, as, as a grade one And kindergarten teacher, uh, sometimes what happens is the the kiddos who get put into that grade one section, not always, but often sort of get put in there for a reason. Oh, we need another year of kindergarten. So I think we also, which I I sometimes disagree with, because I think, you know, truly, I think we need, we need those heterogeneous groups uh, for kids to learn from each other, right? I think, first of all, that we can take kids to where they can go. And I think Sometimes within the context of standardized testing, there's this expectation that we're all in the same speed at the very same time, and that can be really damaging because we know as teachers that there are moments of consolidation in kids' lives that are absolutely fast-forwarded, and sometimes the perception is that they're super, super slow. I think that there's a lot of stuff, and I think neuroscience would probably back this up. There's a lot of consolidation that happens that isn't visible right out the gate. And so just when you plant the tree, you cannot expect that within, you know, six months, they're going to be doing exactly this, you know, your success is going to be measured by their performance in this very standardized way. Like it's just not how life works, but, you know, I've seen tremendous shifts in some of the interactions socially in my students with certain ones that that was their big goal. And, and for me, Maybe the academics, I know that the ground has been set. They're not where I'd expect to see them right now. However, I've seen tremendous progress. And so I think when I see a child move forward in some capacity, that that needs to be celebrated. And they need to be aware of it. I think kids just bloom especially little ones actually all of them do but you kind of have to do it differently you can't be as overt about your praise because it can be really embarrassing for middle schoolers that you need to do it differently but um but they just bloom when they are seen and when their progress is seen and when they really you know they really care about their work and they try and you see that they care and you give them that kind of acknowledgement they keep doing it and then they do grow faster than you would expect but they won't grow if you're like listen guys we're on a timeline and y'all need to be at this level by this point or i fail as a teacher like nobody works well under those kind of circumstances so i think we have to give ourselves some grace go i will take them to where they can go celebrate every little tiny circle that they make and then the concentric circles and and then and then the the ever widening ripples that kind of happen as a result of that growth and to also recognize the small little bits of growth. And to also, this is another piece, to understand that if, if they are currently experiencing something difficult at all, traumatizing at home, you need to give space for that kind of backslide in, in behavior as well. Because if you can just be hold st- steady as this, this sort of... Um, just this strong and kind and patient adult in their life that that means so much. They're going to, they're going to be able to bounce back a little quicker, I think. So yeah. lots of pieces there, but the, that's my thought. No, in my, these- in
0: my program, um, Montessori, uh, that was, uh, that's part of our philosophy. We mm-hmm. call it following the student. So, mm-hmm. um, we have, st- we, whatever they whatever they're, fortunately we don't have standardized testing in our schools. So yeah. whatever level they're at, you know, we try to push them forward, but we but they can be in the same grouping, in the same age grade. We call them years. They can be at very different levels. It makes it difficult for the teacher, but you know, it's a. Uh, I think it's a good system in that regard. Yeah,
2: it honors the student. I think I, I can see it being very challenging at times to plan for that for sure, and then to assess in different ways, like complicated. But I but it honors the student. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, I, I, I want to just shift a little bit because um, you're, you're a young teacher, though you've been teaching for 14 years and you have a number of years in front of you in, in which mm-hmm. you'll be teaching. I assume you're going to keep teaching. But as I reach towards the end of my teaching career, um, I'm asking um, another kind of goal related question. We're talking about goals here. Did I reach my goal as a teacher as a, as a you know, having done this for many years? And what is my legacy? And this is a question that you bring up. For Mm -hmm. a young teacher to ask, what is my legacy going to be? I'm Mm -hmm. asking what my legacy is. What is the importance of asking that question at the end of your career or at the beginning or middle of your career?
2: I kind of believe, I think we're all, maybe I'm speaking for myself, but I think that we like to make meaning as human beings of the life that we lead and the life that we've led. And... I think if we can do so in an intentional way right out the gate that it can align us a little bit more with the way that we want to show up day to day. So it doesn't necessarily mean that we have a very defined goal necessarily. It can be even around how is it that you want to leave your interactions? You know, I like the idea of having my students feel inspired. That's a, that's a word that I've associated myself with that for me, I'm aligned with. So when I think about the general goal of my legacy in my classroom, I want their eyes to go like this and be wide open when we're learning something new and go, oh, and then to wanna come back after the weekend and be like, guess what? We just watched a show on that at home or I just read a book or listen, I made this clay, whatever, that has to do with this theme that you just did in the classroom and that they're jazzed up and they're inspired to keep learning about it. That's what I want out of my legacy as a classroom teacher. For someone else, it might be something different, but you wouldn't really know if you didn't ask yourself, you know, how do you want your students to feel after they leave your classroom? Do what do you want them to be thinking about? How do you want them to conceptualize themselves? You're a teacher. You get to have quite, quite a huge impact on how they do those things. That's your legacy because they'll probably remember you. And so you kind of want them to remember you because they've you've made a positive impact on, on their life. Like
1: your theater teacher in high school.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's one more topic that I want to look
0: at, and that is yeah. the importance of creativity in the classroom and in our lives. You are interested in theater. Um, can mm-hmm. this sort of creativity, this performance, help the teacher facing burnout?
2: Oh, my goodness. Okay, I'm so passionate about this part of the book. And I think when we think about counseling or we think about quote self-help stuff which i think this kind of falls into that category we do not often point to creativity as a means of getting to a wholehearted place as human beings however i would argue that it is probably the most mm-hmm. the most human form of expression that we could possibly have in terms of really letting our whole selves shine through when we really connect with creativity and i am not just talking you know performative type arts uh, or, or you know, visual arts in the art kind of way. I'm talking like, like the way that you cook dinner, the way mm. that you that you move through the world and, and choose to see your neighbors and and talk to them in the eye. The, the conversations that you have, the type of questions that you might have, uh, you know, at the at, with your colleagues, you know, that is art. The way that you choose to show up. And it's hard work sometimes, creativity. Like I said in the book, you know, our creativity declines over time as adults. And it's only because we lose sight of that thread, we lose sight of that ability to suspend our disbelief. To and play. To fully play, yeah. Right. And play is the antidote to perfectionism. And I think what's kind of plaguing our society a bit right now is that whole idea that, like, everything needs to be perfect. We all, you know. Cancel if we culture. Need to- yes yes yes, absolutely i think that there's just not the space being made for humanity play is humanity creativity is humanity it's messy and it's beautiful and we get to know ourselves that way we grow that way we connect with others that way and when we're in flow which is this loss of time that is has been deemed one of the happiest kind of mindsets that we can possibly have so I say to people you know challenge yourself because sometimes they're like well I I don't know how I'm not creative I don't know how to be creative so challenge yourself to go and explore some novelty go do something you've never done before and it could be skydiving but it could also be take a Thai cooking course and see what happens maybe that'll light you up I did a, a soap making thing with my sister and a bunch of her girlfriends the other day and it was I went in kind of going like mm, I'm not that into soap. Like I, yeah, I, I don't know. It was so joyful. We got to pick the scents. Like we got to pick the color. Everything was so fun. And so I just think we need to give ourselves the opportunity to explore new things and allow whatever will happen and percolate to happen. And that's being human. So let's give ourselves more opportunity for more,
1: that. More flow, less perfectionism. Sounds yes.
0: great. Is is yes. it possible? that for some the best choice is to leave teaching when does a teacher know she's through
2: yeah I, you know i think a lot of educators are asking themselves this question right now it's it's not unexpected i like this framework so when you're thinking of making a decision like that when you're thinking of quitting you can ask yourself two questions so number 1 is is it working and working is kind of nebulous, but you're going to have a definition of what it means for something to be working for you, whether it's financial, whether it's commute wise, whether it's, whether it's know, a marriage. Yes, everything, everything yeah. can come down to these two questions.
1: Not that is I want to divorce. You know, yeah. <laughs> Let's just clarify
0: no. that. <laughs> I thought you meant a marriage with your, with your teaching job. Yeah. No. Well, that, well too. Could be that too. But yeah. I think, oh, you know, whether coast. you want to
2: mm. have more kids, whether you want to, you know, all oh, of okay. these things, a new mm. car, whatever it is. You you can bring it down to these two things. Is it working and do I love it? And if the answer is yeah, it's working but I don't love it like maybe it brings in enough money and it it functionally, logistically works for you, but like the passion's gone, then you have to find a way to bring back that passion somehow so that you feel like you're loving it. Now, not for everybody. If the answer is it's not really working and then I really don't love it, then you have an opportunity to go, okay, maybe I need to go find something different that I love and that works better. Yeah. Um, if you love it, but it's not working, then maybe it's time to find a way to make that job, uh, whether it's teaching or whatever, work better for you. So maybe you need to change grades. Maybe you need to explore teaching in a different realm. Maybe it's not school teaching the way that that we think of it, you know, um, historically. Maybe there's another way that you can be a teacher uh, or an educator or a coach or something like that. I just think sometimes we think of teaching in such a box. And when you open up the boundaries a bit, you can get creative. But I think it starts with those two questions. Is it working? And do I love it? and then find a way to make it work and love it
1: (laughs) yeah Uh, morgane we're having so much fun i have one more question i wanted to ask you and it kind of broadens out our conversation here though i think we've kind of alluded to it you seem to sum up the goals of your book i'll say the name one more time because people should take a look at this from burnt out to fired up Mm -hmm. in the following excerpt from uh, another um i think it was a a piece written by sapala and cameron Mm-hmm. Which, you, which you cite, called Proof That Positive Work Cultures Are More Productive. That's the title of their paper. But this is yeah. what they write. Quote, by challenging our biases and mobilizing authentic kindness in schools, it is possible to create ideal school cultures of belonging and psychological safety. The goal is students who feel prepared for the uncertain future and capable of reaching their fullest potential. How do you see this uncertain future of our children? We started this conversation with that. And how can you as a teacher help them get there?
2: Mm. I'm going to give you an example from my own life, my personal life. So number one, I think the uncertain future is uncertain because it's very hard to define. I think we see... Little tidbits of what we understand it might be, maybe like a very free, free open market type situation where maybe organizations aren't the end all be all. Maybe there are ever fluctuating companies that are sort of running the world. Who knows? It can be very dystopian or utopian, it's very, very hard to understand or even conceptualize. And as a teacher, it's very hard to understand necessarily how we can set, like set our children up for success. I have a daughter. She's hugely passionate in crafting and all things creative and at times it can be really exhausting meeting that need for constant and i'm not creating this stuff but just you know she's seven right? materials materials it's the energy that it takes to make a giant mess all these things so i try a lot to sort of give space for that creativity and then when she says things like she said this the other day I want to make a company and here. And I said, okay, tell me more. Like, why do you want to do it? Who's it for? What are you doing? And not in a critical way, but more just really curious and asking the questions. She knew exactly all the answers. She had a sense. She knew the tagline. She knew the name of the company. (laughs) She was creating these little clay figures that kids can assemble on their own. And she wrote out all these instructions and like wild. So I think part of it is being responsive and giving children kind of that boost that they need to do what it is that they love to do and to give them kind of the boundaries and 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 yet kind of hold their hands through it so I taught her a little bit about okay let's make a movie for this if you want to do this let's do it this way and she edited all the music like bring the things that you can to your child's life and then let them go with their dreams and just little bits at the beginning because I think you know think back to my grade two year because that's where she's at right now. I had a little club where I made all my friends come over and do story writing. I'm sure they just loved that. (laughs) But in grade two, I was writing. And then I kind of forgot about all that. And then I look at where I'm at right now and I go, oh my gosh, I was doing a lot of the things that I love to do as an adult. When I was in, you know, when I was seven years old and here she is talking about companies, I'm like, well, maybe she'll be an entrepreneur. Not because I want that for her, but, but because it's, in, you know, intrinsic in her. So I think when we listen to our, our children, they are able to be what the world needs in order to sort of fit into this economic world that we live in. But we just have to help them to understand that they have gifts and they have worthy goals and to sort of hold their hands through that. And in this very, very undefined future, I think that's all we can do. And much of that comes back to supporting their passions. So, yeah, yeah that's yeah. kind of where I'm at.
0: It's all possible. Mm-hmm. It's happened before. Yeah. Braille invented his system of reading for blind people when he was 12.
2: Wow. wow. 12 that's or 13. Right. Yeah.
0: And I, I've met people that, um, when they were nine, they decided that they wanted to start a nonprofit organization. And when they were 13, they figured out how to, you know, what exactly what they wanted to do. And as an adult, by the time they graduated from high school, they were on their way. They already had started it and it, yeah. was, and it was working. It's beautiful. Yeah. And then yeah. they're
2: serving the world, doing the thing that they've kind of been meant to do. And I think the less they hear like, shut that dream down, be realistic, the more likely they actually will oh, be able boy. to do these yeah. wonderful things. Oh, right. Yeah, that's, that's, a, yeah. that's
1: a killer. That's be great. realistic. Yeah. Right. yeah, What realism are you talking about? Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: Thank you. Morgaine Michaels for joining us at a no bar bar crawl radio. (laughs) Your new book, From Burnout to Fired Up, Reigniting Your Passion for Teaching, is available everywhere. It's a really fun and impactful read. And if you're a teacher, and if you know that teachers are important to a thriving democratic society, I'd say get the book.
1: I hope that we get out to Victoria, British Columbia someday and get to meet you face to face and take you out for a drink. <laughs> we, we owe would you one. I would love that. that. I would love great. that. I will
2: take you to my favorite haunts. But okay. thank you both so much, Alan and Rebecca, for having me on. It's been so fun. And I just I love talking about this. And I hope that it's of some use, some value to your listeners. So thank you so much.